All right, thanks, Peter and band. Uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you're brand new, welcome to our church. Like Ellen said before, we're glad you are, are here joining us today. Uh, we are in a sermon series for the summer on the book of 2 Timothy. And uh, approaching the end, we'll have, I think, two more weeks after this before moving on to some other things for this fall. Uh, but the big whole uh, idea behind 2 Timothy is it's Paul's, the Apostle Paul's second letter to Timothy, uh, who was his protege, kind of a son in the faith that he left behind in Ephesus after kind of the wave of the gospel came through and people converted, they became Christians. Uh, as you read the book of Acts and other places, you see that kind of the pattern is that elders and pastors are, are raised up to kind of put into order uh, what kind of remains. It's a, a local church ministry is important, having leadership is important uh, for the apostles. And so uh, Timothy was one of the pastors in the city of, of Ephesus, and these pastoral letters of the New Testament then uh, kind of consist of uh, a, you know, an, an older kind of senior pastor type uh, encouraging these younger pastors in all things pastoring. Uh, now, as we've been saying in this series, you don't have to be a pastor or an aspiring one, though, to, to get meaning from this book. This is ultimately a book about the chief shepherd of our souls, Jesus Christ. And when you, when you talk about a human pastor, it's, it, it, there's, uh, you have to see Jesus. Uh, we, we are invited in, at least, to seeing how human pastors can be a reflection of him and how the deeper magic or deeper theology uh, in these writings are actually from God to us. They're love letters uh, from God, uh, God to us. So, um, yes, we talk a lot about the church. We talk about maybe leadership principles. Uh, there's other things kind of at a human level that are important for us. But the, the bigger message is uh, that Jesus is alive, that he loves us, that he died for us, that he's shepherding us with care and concern and grace um, all the way into that final promised land that we eagerly await and kind of uh, plot ahead towards. So, uh, today we're going to look at uh, terrible times. So, yeah, cozy up to that one here, uh, but it's just what, that's kind of the left turn that he takes here. Paul is in prison at this time under Nero's persecution of Christians in the 60s AD, roughly, and he likely sees the writing on the wall that his um, trial's not going so well, and he's pretty sure he's going to be uh, executed uh, for being a Christian. And so some of the letter has kind of this final words dimension to it, or final, you know, words of love or compassion for Timothy, but also kind of final instructions before he kind of uh, signs off, you know, essentially, and goes to be with Jesus. But the baton gets passed, in a, you know, from him to the other uh, pastors in that regard in a lot of ways. So, um, yeah, more on that maybe as we, as we go. If I had to, uh, to subtitle uh, this sermon, though, I would say, uh, things uh, take a turn for the darker, but not without hope. And as I was writing that, I was thinking that could be the subtitle for a lot of our lives, right, in the way. Things are taking a turn for the darker a lot, but there's always hope. That's the Christian story uh, in, in a nutshell. So it invites us in, I think, personally to, to see a lot of our story in Timothy and the world of, you know, Asia Minor, essentially here 2,000 years ago. All right, 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 9, we'll start with to begin, and then we'll uh, come back and look at the second half a little bit later. Verse 1, but mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, 
lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women, who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. All right, so a few words on verse 1 to start. He begins with, in the last days there will be terrible times. even adds a mark this at the beginning, which I kind of like uh, just for emphasis. Um, this reminds us, though, that for Christians, if you think about what this implies when he's writing this, uh, it implies that for Christians, there will be terrible times and not so terrible times. And Peter just prayed this, I think, in light of those, the lyrics of that last song, By Thy Mercy. Uh, we sing a lot of these themes in some of our, our hymns and songs uh, in, in church. There are terrible times and there are not so terrible times. There will be terrible times, and there will be not so terrible times. That, that's just, I mean, that's a generic in one sense life principle, right? The rub, though, of course, is that we don't really have control over which we get to experience in life. Uh, even for Paul, when he writes this, it's future tense, but without a specific date attached to it. Uh, some Christians suffer more than others. Some Christians live in a more uh, closed-off country, maybe around the world, closed to the gospel, with more oppressive governments, and they have to worry about being imprisoned for being a Christian. Um, some have families who disown them for, being, uh, for converting to Christianity. Some will feel the weight of others' sin in particular ways more than others. But the point is, we all live in the last days. Uh, Jesus has ushered in the end of history, that means, with his death and resurrection. And Paul, uh, is, Paul is saying we live in the end times now, just like 2,000 years ago, in one sense, just like we do now. Uh, Jesus is the, the last bracket. Even though we still eagerly await his second coming, we live in the last times uh, because he is the final word God has said to a dead and dying world. Uh, and whether sooner or later, uh, terrible times will be on the increase, I think is what this is saying. Um, the phrase I was thinking this week is, evil is always on the uptick. And I think this is... Uh, you know, this could be a problematic passage for Christians who think things are going to get better in life all the time, like in a perfect kind of exponential growth curve. Uh, that's just not what the Bible teaches. Um, when Jesus comes back, of course, things will be perfectly and forever better. Uh, but until then, uh, it's kind of a crapshoot. It's, uh, it's a bit of a coin flip. It's a bit of a, we, it could, things do get better in some ways in our life sometimes, but we're also all going to die. So that, that's always this kind of final asterisks, you know, by the better days that we experience in this life is, is uh, we get sick and, and we suffer, we face persecution, and we eventually die. So uh, trouble, trouble's on the uptick. Evil's always on the uptick. And that um, shouldn't be a surprise for Christians with a high view of sin and who know what it cost God to save us from it. I think that's important to remember. Uh, it, it's, I mean, in one sense, sin is surprising because it's um, always awful and it can catch us off guard. But in other sense, for Christians with a high view, a right biblical view of sin, um, th this verse isn't like, sh shouldn't be shocking. And when we experience the kind of the, the weight of it, um, it's also not a complete out of left field thing. We know God's in control. We know he's in involved in the world. But um, 
running concurrent with the terrible times, he's always saving people, but um, both those things are always going to be true until Jesus comes back. All right, uh, with that said, now I want to go back to the sin list uh, for a second um, and just ask you, how does reading this list make you feel? Or how, how did just hearing it now as I read this make, make you feel? Did you feel like it was long? I kind of did. I'm like, wow, this is going on forever. Uh, kinda, I, this week when I was writing this sermon, I was thinking, I, I really like this sin list, and that sounds awful to say because uh, I don't like these things, of course, but I like how diverse it is. I like how some things are very small and some people wouldn't even consider them awful things, maybe. Or they'd be like, really? Yeah, but everyone kind of does that. It's not that big a deal. Um, this is a helpful place to go sometimes to see, well, what is, actually is evil? What is evil? What is sin? What are, we, what are we being saved from? And you see things like this sometimes in the letters of the New Testament, of course, the Old uh, Testament too. But what thoughts go through your mind when, when you read this? Because it can be read from a couple of different angles. I actually have three here. Uh, the first two um, are maybe less in focus, but I'll still go through them. The first is you can think uh, the world is like this. Like maybe you think, man, this increasingly feels descriptive of culture at large today. When I turn on the news, I mean, bam, this is just what I feel. This is why I, I think things are getting worse. Uh, they're getting more, uh, you know, uh, kind of debative and combative, people can't get along, there's less love, less understanding. Um, it just doesn't seem like there's a lot of hope. Uh, the other way you can come at this is uh, read a list like this and say, man, I'm kind of like this. Uh, or at least I used to be before Jesus got a hold of me, but if I'm honest, I still see a lot of myself in these things even as a believer. Both of those things are legitimate takes. The former one as I said before, maintains a high view of sin and kind of keeps us on guard and prayerful and on mission towards a dead and dying world. Uh, but uh, the second one uh, keeps us grounded on the gospel itself because the reality is we aren't saved so much from abstaining from these things as we are repenting or turning from them to Jesus and believing in his death and resurrection alone uh, to cleanse uh, dirty souls. And, and to make us new. The, the blood of Christ is, again, as Peter was praying before too. All right, there's a third angle on it, though. I'll come back to some of these. I, I, I share these, again, just to say these are legitimate things. This is not to say, even if Paul didn't have them, like, on his mind at the bullseye of what he was saying, I think he did, though, kind of as an outer ring thing. And I think certainly you see this elsewhere. It's okay to kind of come at this from a layered approach. Um, the third angle on it, though, and probably most in view for Paul, is that the such people from, I think that's verse 5, when he says such people are, are like this, puts the spotlight on a particular type of person, right? And if you hear last week, we talked about how the, this particular type of person is our false teachers. And um, other uh, commentators I was reading called them religious charlatans. Uh, they are the ones who are ultimately, uh, or they're also like this, of course, just like all of us to some degree, but they're especially like this. Uh, ones that, uh, quote, worm into churches and teach half-truth gospels and lead people away with uh, bad theology. Uh, so a quick aside on the phrase gullible women there, uh, what he's saying is most women um, were illiterate in that culture. Uh, and so this is actually Paul's desire for Timothy to care for those who are easily persuaded and maybe, don't have, a, maybe have a harder time defending themselves whether women or men, because obviously men are gullible too. Uh, this isn't a gender thing. It's just saying that in that particular setting, um, Timothy needed to look out for these women who were 
uh, maybe especially susceptible or anybody who was just less trained in the scriptures and was a baby Christian or something like that. But if you look at how they were described, uh, and I cut it off here, but um, actually, no, I didn't, who were loaded down with sins, that's all of us. You know, so in one sense, these women become a picture of all of us. We are loaded down with sins. We sometimes don't know which end is up. We don't understand the things of God. We need someone outside of us to help us. That's church. That's reasonability. That's just life. That's also the gospel. We need God outside of us uh, to renew us, not to hope that renewal comes from within and and is pushed out from within, Uh, but, but we need a help, an external, an objective help to us, not a subjective one. All right, so going back then to the sin list, um, from that third angle, the, and so looking at this from like the moral awfulness and gospel uh, theology and teaching of the false teachers, like basically we see both. We're, we're seeing in one sense, this is just describing their moral character. They're abusive, they're hedonistic, they're lovers of evil. But digging deeper, and rem- I was kind of getting at this, but in the last week as well, remembering uh, and uh, the essence of many of their teachings uh, helps to shine light on this as well because they weren't teaching encouraging sin outright, but they're drawing people away from Jesus to some false sense of internal and religious goodness that in turn leads to sin. All right, and that can be kind of hard to understand, but basically you see this all throughout the New Testament in so many of Paul's letters. It's not... Um, the obvious things that are the false teachings. It's the subtle things. It's the, uh, the, another phrase the Bible uses is wolf in sheep's clothing. So a lot of like false gospels or false Christian, like pseudo-Christian teachings look very Christian. They look sheep-like, but at the core they're wolf-like. Uh, and this is why pastors and, and all Christians get this exhortation to be on guard and not uh, to just drink the Kool-Aid of a half gospel but only wait for the pure gospel. And we all drink the Kool-Aid of half gospels at times. It's not to say that we need to be perfect at this. It's just to say this is a real thing. For 2,000 years, false gospels have been infiltrating churches. And now it's even worse today because we have social media and you know, awful um, feeds that we look at every day that have all kinds of just crap on it. But, uh, and so we have to be on guard for that as well. Um, and so maybe some of you have been uh, exposed to this. Some of you haven't. You probably will. Um, but that's what's going on here, is that it's not just their character, it's, uh, it's how these characteristics flow from what they were teaching. So look at some of these things in highlight here. Uh, lovers of themselves, boastful, ungrateful. Uh, it actually says, um, I don't know if you guys caught this, but it says, boastful, proud, and conceited. I didn't know they were different, but apparently you can be all three. Uh, so basically they were arrogant, uh, arrogant people. Um, but boastful, ungrateful, unforgiving. Um, Here's what I mean. These traits are symptoms of a type of pseudo-Christian religion that moves on from the gospel. Uh, Taking the first one in verse 2 as an example, uh, loving the self, trusts in the self. Like It's it's really hard to be Christian um, and believe that the essence of Christianity is not to trust in myself, but to trust in something outside of me. I'm saved by God's grace, not by my performance. It's really hard to press into that and actually rampantly be a lover of the self. You know, again, all Christians are going to, everyone in the room, just to kind of even the playing field, we all do that, right? We're being saved from it too. But still, to wear this on our sleeve, to be a, a lover of the self, this is a symptom 
of something much deeper, of believing that we are more than we actually are, something when we're nothing, Paul says in Galatians 6. Uh, boasting puts the focus on our good works, not on Jesus's. Uh, ungratefulness means that we're forgetting what's been done for us by God and flexing our religious muscles instead. Uh, unforgiving means we aren't believing that we've been forgiven by God through Jesus at high cost to himself. Uh, Ephesians 4.32 is a helpful counterpart, kind of sister verse to that, where, where he says, um, not just forgive each other, Christians, but he says, as you've first been forgiven by God in and through Jesus Christ at high cost to himself, live out of that. Uh, so the Bible actually never ultimately says forgive each other. Uh, it, it's, uh, it says you've been forgiven by God. You, you've, uh, he forgives you even though he, in one sense, doesn't have to. It's unjust. It's unfair. He bears that burden and absorbs that. Uh, the more that we're wrecked by that, moved by that, the more we'll tend to express forgiveness to others who hurt us. That's the idea. So it's much more kind of complex and layered, but much more gospel-rich than just saying forgive one another. So seeing these lists then, this last one too, having a form of godliness but denying its power, that's just external religiosity without internal heart change. The, the list goes on. But this is how we have to peel back the top layers from sin lists like this and ask, what type of pseudo-Christian teaching leads to this kind of sin? Uh, because it's, you know, just coming into a church, otherwise healthy church, and saying, um, we should boast, we should be ungrateful, it's important today to not forgive people, uh, you know, we should be treacherous, like that wouldn't be listened to, that would be immediately dismissed. So what kind of teaching then is actually being kind of entertained? It's not the outright teaching of do this. It's the subtle half gospel that leads to it. That's the problem. And what that is, is again, teaching people to rely on themselves and to focus on the law of the Bible versus the gospel. Uh, that actually incites sin because it can't be kept and it doesn't proceed uh, from faith. We, some people call this Jesus plus theology, so not being okay with him alone, but putting a plus sign after him and filling the blank in to our heart's terrible desire. Uh, Romans 6.14 says, the reason sin will have no mastery over you is because you are decidedly under grace and not under law. So the way that change comes is by not living under the commandments. If we do, we, it incites sin. It makes it worse. Romans 5 says this, that the law came in to make sin worse and increase so that grace might come in and have a better word for us. Uh, but the grace of God that saves us in an unconditionalized, one-way loving way where God absorbed our sin and took on pain for us actually wins the heart through the side door in a way that, that the, you know, the, the full front war can't. Uh, we can't fight it ourselves. We need to be won over by the love of another. More on that later. Another reason we know this is the case, and his further kind of um, explication of this, which is really weird, uh, is his mention of these two men, Janus and Jambres. Everyone knows Janus and Jambres, right? No. He, he, I mean, no, no one does. Maybe you do. Uh, it's, uh, it's actually not, these actually aren't uh, biblical names, or they're biblical here, but they're, they're not um, uh, ex explicitly biblical. They are from Jewish extra-biblical literature, 
And what they are are the names of the magicians who resisted Moses in Egypt in the book of Exodus. You guys read this story where uh, Moses goes to save Israel or God through him and he performs these miracles and plagues? Well, the first three times, uh, the, the evil magicians mimic uh, Moses' uh, um, miracles. And the fourth one, they can't. But they, but they say, like with the staff, Moses throws a staff down on the ground, it becomes a snake. And then Pharaoh says, well, my, my magicians can do that. And sure enough, they copy him and, and they do it too. And it says Pharaoh hardened his heart because of that. Then uh, Moses turns the Nile River into blood. And then the mag- magicians are like, well, we can do that too. Uh, and then um, Moses brings a plague of frogs to fill the whole land. Sounds awful. Uh, except my daughter who loves toads might love that. But uh, the, it sounds awful, right? That, that's, they, they do that too. The evil magicians say, I can do that too. When the, fourth, when the fourth thing comes, which is the plague of gnats, they say, oh, we can't do that. Which is funny, right? Because we can make frogs come out of nothing. Why can't you make gnats come out of nothing? It seems a little bit easier, but they can't. They say, this is the finger of God. We can't create gnats out of nothing. And they, take, they sort of, and then Moses takes more of a front seat. Strange story, right? Have you ever wondered why, that, why that's there? Why those magicians are even able to do that? And, and why the story exists in such detail? Well, this is fascinating because Paul is helping us interpret that Old Testament story. He's telling us why it's there and what it means with New Testament light shed upon it. He's saying the point of it is to show a clash between works and grace. He says the point of it is to expose legalism and works-based theology. In other words, the magician's sin was that they thought to they sought to mimic God. They said, "We can do what God does. We are enough. We are able. We can match his works." In other words, we can save ourselves. Remember all this happened during the Exodus, which was a salvation event as well. So they were looking on the works of their hands and Pharaoh Pharaoh was through them and they, they did not receive the works of God's hands. So what what he's saying is the false teachers in Timothy's day were the same. They resisted the truth, meaning they promoted law-centered righteousness. They said, Jesus is good, but now you are able. They added on to the truth of Jesus with tons of now you musts. And they said that sanctification is the job of the Christian, not the job of the Holy Spirit inside of you. And many such things like this. Uh, and what Paul is saying is, I've heard this story before. And it's not just Janus and Jammers. It could be many places. But this is the, the mantra, the ongoing cycle of the story of God is the clash between the ways of thinking and the clash between how we relate to God. Is it us or him? Is it law or grace? They, they don't go together. Uh, you can't do both. What Paul is saying here then, kind of actually the only imperative in this, the only like command in this whole first section is have nothing to do with these people. That's the only like outright thing he's saying to do. The other things are just descriptions of things that are already true and will always be true. The only thing he says like you should do is have nothing to do with these kinds of people. That is to say, have nothing to do with promoters of godless living and promoters of gospel light theology. So it's not simply a call to hang out with, it's not simply a call to um, not hang out with sinners you know, or you wouldn't be able to hang out with anyone, nor would anyone be able to hang out with you. 
so there's, there's, a, there's a specificity to this. Uh, nor is it a call to separate rashly from a Christian who's struggling a bit with some of these things that I'm talking about this morning. We all struggle with them to a degree. But there is a line here, and it's especially for pastors to be aware of, but we all can, uh, is, that it's, is that if and when there is a stubborn, unrepentant, works-based, gospel light, Jesus-abdicating, cross-sanitizing false teacher who's influencing people, uh, Paul is saying, protect the church from that person and have nothing to do with them. And this should really stand out because if you just remember from last, was it last chapter, the chapter before, Paul, Paul actually talked about, you know, really hanging out with each other and really moving towards people who are, you know, who are suffering and in pain or who are different from you. And so the Bible actually says what might feel like the opposite to this a lot, but there is a line. There's a point where we separate and say it's this type of damnable false teaching that uh, not just godless living too, absolutely, that's promoting that, but it's especially the subtle, quiet, disguised, Jesus-y looking, but not really Jesus at the core, uh, gospel light, uh, half-truth garbage um, that we really need to call out. And if, and if they're in this state of warming into homes and, and not repenting, to actually full-blown separate from them. Um, now, if you're not a pastor, you don't have to burden yourself with actually figuring all that out, you know? Like, I'm not, I'm not even, like, standing up here saying this is, like, a specific word for all of us. This is a specific word for pastors, I think, primarily. Like, this is our job as pastors to draw thick black lines between the truth and falsehood, you know, for you sometimes. Not that we're always perfect at that, but that's our job, uh, is to know this book so well that we can do that and to have um, th- that sense about it where we can smell half-truths a mile away um, and call them out sometimes, or at least to teach in a different way uh, the truth and not, um, not a lie. Okay, let's read the last section, verses 10 to 17. We'll see how Paul kind of rounds out his encouragement here. Verse 10. You, however, Timothy, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from from them all. In fact, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ." All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay, Uh, let's start with this. Uh, Paul, if I were to summarize it, he says basically to Timothy, in light of all that stuff, the darkness, the, the surprise left turn, the terrible times promise, he says, you though, Timothy, have two things. And this is a word for all all Christians as well. Uh, Two things. One, you have Scripture. And you have Scripture in the right way. You have the the rightly taught Scriptures. Uh, The word Scripture uh, means writings. The the Greek word is graphe. Uh, In this case, it's the writings of God because we're talking about the Bible. 
Um, Paul's encouragement to Timothy as a Christian and in his role as a pastor is don't ever veer from the Bible. That's not always easy to see when that's happening, but it's still important to say to all believers, uh, but to pastors who lead people with the word, is don't veer from what's written. And now, so to protect him, though, from the same pride that brought down the false teachers, Paul makes three, like, sub-points in here that, you know, further kind of talk about what the scriptures actually are and also some kind of, like, subtle good news or gospel teaching uh, strewn in as well. Well, in fact, we'll start with one of those. Uh, The first thing that sticks out to me is uh, this word infancy. You guys catch that? It's like, why didn't you say, like, when you were a kid, or at least, or when you were, like, a teenager? Or, you know, why'd you say infant? Like, that seems, like, how many, um, those of your parents, how many of you would say, my infants knew the Bible really well? Like, my, my, my two-week-old knew the scriptures really well. Like, no one would say that, right? In fact, that's impossible, impossible, right? That's why this word is here. It's impossible to know the Bible without the help of God, just like it's impossible to be saved without the work of God in our life. This is a a Christian way of thinking. Paul is throwing this word in here to protect Timothy and all of us reading to say, when you use the word infancy, you take human effort out of it completely. Using the word infancy immediately removes all human effort. Now, it doesn't mean we don't work hard understanding this. Some of us have Bible degrees in the room. Those are great things. This is just saying, at the end of the day, this was given. Knowledge was given to you. Salvation was given. Grace was given. Knowledge of God was given. Closeness to God is given because he wants to, because he loves you. That's what infancy, if you click on infancy, that's the webpage that opens up. It's like, that's the hyperlink. That's why it's important. Uh, it's like when Jesus says, and I think it's Luke 10, where he says, um, he's actually praying uh, to, to God the Father, praising him. He's saying, I praise you, God, for hiding these truths from wise people, from the learned, and revealing them to little children. And it's one of the few times in the Gospels we see the word joy attached to Jesus. You may think, well, why is that such a happy moment? This is the core of what makes God tick. This is the core of the biblical story. We don't earn anything. Nothing. Nothing you've done, good or bad, has any bearing whatsoever on salvation. Nothing. Isn't that amazing? Nothing. We are infants being given to lying on our backs on the floor and God looks upon us in love and says, I, I want that one. I choose him. I choose her. See, when, when, when Jesus says, I'm hiding things from people that know a lot, doesn't mean that wise people never become Christians. They do all the time. It's just saying that there's a generalized almost parable here of saying sometimes the smartest are the ones that reject Jesus and little kids are understanding deep, deep spiritual mysteries. And it's like, how? How? Well, if it were up to us, only the smartest would believe and all of the not smartest would not believe if it were about us figuring God out. But it's, praise God, not about that. You and I are Christians if you're a Christian because God wanted us to be. He recreated us. We're, we're born again. 
uh, as, as Jesus says in John 3, we're, we're made new. And so, but again, get this huge bunny trail. Let me just bring this back and just say when it becomes uh, something about Scripture, our abilities and knowledge are not our own. They are given, ultimately. All right. He continues by saying, continue in. Timothy is to continue in what he's learned. Uh, this is a really important little phrase here because it means... Pastors, Christians, should not invent new theology. It's the red flag of red flags. If you're uh, you know, ever in a church, whether it's this church or another church, where theology is invented, where it's never been said before, um, and there's no verse to support, you know, crazy stuff like, like that, even if there, might, there might, might seem to be sometimes. Run. Don't walk for the door. Sprint. Uh, it is uh, the worst place you can be. Uh, is, is in that kind of setting. And so Paul, Paul is saying as pastors, we receive something and we recapitulate it. We take it, we say it, maybe in different words, but we, we're saying nothing new, nothing new. In 16 years, I haven't said one new thing up here. Now, it might be um, new to you because you haven't heard these things before, but the truths themselves are old. Um, they're, they're old truths. They've been said a billion times, and they'll be said a billion more. Um, so novelty for Christians is something to be avoided at all costs. I'll just say that to all of you, um, leader or not. Novelty uh, is to be avoided at all costs. If you pick up a, uh, uh, your average uh, church history text, and there might be something in the beginning, there, there are a lot of them, about Christians and how they thought about novelty. It's interesting, Irenaeus is one of these people who lived in the second century, very early, and he wrote about this uh, as one of them. But just to summarize, um, or I guess just to kind of passingly say, uh, the quest, early Christians believed the quest for originality as an end in itself was idolatry. And, and this is, it's, it's uh, you know, I don't know if it's true for all of us in the same way, um, but I think in the world in general, even like in Christian academia, this is a big deal, you know? Like I went to seminary and I remember reading someone's text and that was all the endorsements was this has never been said before. This is this person's mark on, on systematics and the, on theology. And I'm like, oh, interesting. Well, what, what about the last generation? You know, they didn't have this guy, you know? Sucks to be them. It's like we don't, we can say things, old things, new, but to make new things is, is an awful thing. It's not from God. We are rememberers, not inventors. And, and uh, unchanging scripture is the only place to go to find such truth. It's the objective anchor to our restless souls that maybe strive to say things a little bit better than God did. Um, scripture in this way is a fountain and a shield. It's, it's a defense against all things as well. Not just, not just a provision, but a defense against things that are contrary to it. Which I think is why uh, in verse 9, Paul is saying, these false teachers won't get very far. Um, have you guys gotten a sense for this ever? I think, I think uh, maybe in a point in my life where I can say this, you know, not just, it's not theory, but I've seen it so much now, is, is um, these false teachers won't get very far, and they never do because they can't unwrite the Bible. You know, so um, fads, that are not in the Bible, you know, faddish theology, things have their day for like 10 years sometimes. Like um, I was in seminary and I was in my 20s, like in the um, 
early to mid 2000s and uh, there were things there that were like people were saying, oh, this is like this new thing. It never got traction, you know? It's like in the moment you're like, oh my gosh, this is a brand new thing or a new way of saying things, a new way of doing church and it's like it's gone, you know? Things have their day and then they disappear because they're not in here. And I think what Paul is saying to Timothy is you can be encouraged that um, in the face of evil, even in the church, if you feel like you're trying to shovel the ocean and you just feel like it's not working, you can be sure that because we have the objectivity, the objective nature of the gospel, people will eventually get smart. And God will eventually draw people to himself through it as accurately taught in a gospel-centered way and everything's going to be okay. You know, I, I just love that Paul does that. He's about to die. He just got done talking about like the worst, worst sin list ever. And he says, you know what? But things are going to be okay because Bible. So, all right. Then he describes it in this way. All scriptures God breathed. Um, has anyone memorized this verse when they were a kid? Uh, this is a common one. So, um, all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. This is a word that appears nowhere else in the Bible or I believe in antiquity. So many people believe Paul made it up to communicate that scripture is inspired. Again, kind of similar to what we were just talk- talking about. So it's his intention that matters in the end. And because it's God-breathed, it's the only thing that will train us for every good work and will lead us to righteousness and teach us and correct us. Um, and so again, like I was kind of saying before, I, you know, linking scripture and salvation is important uh, because to say scripture is God-breathed is to say salvation is God-breathed, not us-breathed. So when we come to the Bible, we must read it in a God-breathed way, not an us-breathed one, uh, which is to say the book's not about you. Uh, it's for you, but it's not about you primarily. It's about Jesus. And so in and of itself, it has no life. As strange as that might be for those of us that come from like a high scripture tradition, which is good, we have that here too, uh, but it, to, to, for Jesus, actually in John 5, Jesus says, um, he rebukes the religious rulers for this. He says, you guys read the Bible as though it itself has life in it, and it doesn't. Because they were reading it as though it's not about Jesus. And so they were reading, if I just do what it says, then I will have life. And Jesus says, no, it's all about me. And so because you don't read it as though it's about me, it's not giving you life. Like you can't go to the Bible as though it's about you and what you must do. Uh, there are wrong ways and right ways to read it. And there's a ton more to say about that, but that's, that's a John 5 thing. Uh, Jesus here, or there, uh, kind of takes cue and picks up on it and says in his own way, the Bible is Christ-breathed, it's gospel-breathed. And if we read it like a mirror alone, um, or just about what we must do, or believe it's, uh, remember this acronym from the 90s, uh, Bible, Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth, remember that? It's like, I mean, it's, it's, an, it's actually an awful, it's an awful thing. Sorry, it's, it's like, uh, in terms of like uh, acronyms, Basic instructions before leaving the earth, just an awful, like, I can't think of anything more misleading, to be honest, um, but that's another thing. Uh, but if we believe that's all it is, like, it, it'll fall flat, it won't have life. The life it contains is Christ. If we read it without seeing him, uh, we have not encountered the word of God. That leads to this last thing, uh, which is the second thing he's saying, Timothy, you have, and that is my sufferings in love. Uh, from verse 10 to 11. And then this is actually uh, somewhat counterintuitive, maybe seemingly off-subject, but 
Um, one of the most important things I think that Paul says in his entire letter is right here. He says, You, however, Timothy, have my sufferings. In the face of evil, out there in the world, in here, in our hearts, and even sometimes in the church, you know that someone has suffered for you. So Christianity then has the audacity to suggest that the solution to evil isn't so much trying not to do it, though we do, but to remember that someone has suffered for you in love. That's what Christianity is all about. That's what the New Testament letters are actually teaching. Paul's stories then become a picture to us of Christ. This is really Christ's story. As Christians in the face of adversity and evil, we have a Christ who suffered for us and who loved us, whose cross-centered purpose and faithfulness unto death, whose patience and love for us becomes our only hope for the terrible days that are upon us and even inside of us. So uh, in the face of those then who are teaching a you-can-do-it false gospel, to circle back to that and show how this relates, in the face of those who are teaching a you-can-do-it false gospel, Paul says, the only way to lasting change is to be surprised by forgiveness and love. To know that you've been given something so undeserving and so unconditional, to know the love of God for you, who sent his son to die for your sins and to show you patience, not judgment. Timothy had this way of thinking, and the false teachers didn't. They stumbled over their legalistic, high expectations form of Christianity, and it only led to more sin, more and more sin, more and more evil. But Timothy had a better way, the only true way, which is the way of grace, the way of righteousness that comes from faith and a trust in a love outside of yourself. All right, so I'll just uh, double down on that by just saying as one of your pastors, like, this is incredibly important for us, we would say, uh, just as, as people, as fellow believers with you, this is really what we want you to hear uh, in this book, is there's so much to say at the end of the day, but this is, but this is really it, um, that Paul wanted Timothy to know he was loved, and that someone loved him so much that they actually spilt blood for him. And he's actually talking about himself, but he is a picture of Christ to him. And this being Christ's love letter to us, that's the ultimate echo. That's the deeper magic. That's what we're ultimately to see, is that that has the power to change our lives, to change our hearts, to win us over, to bring down the facade, to stop the mask wearing, um, just to stop the striving at the end of the day and to help us actually live a Christian life which is full of rest, stillness, belief, hope, and tirelessly pressing into that truth that it's about him and not about us, about what he's done and uh, not about what we've done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, uh, this book, this passage that, uh, yeah, again, full of left turns, surprises, um, interesting Old Testament citations, uh, long sin lists, uh, and also strange consolations uh, in how Paul seeks to encourage Timothy and to really kind of define who he is and what makes him different as a pastor rather than the false pastors. Um, at the end of the day, we're wicked people who need forgiveness. We're sinners. 
Um, and the gospel at the end of the day is not about us. It's not about the love of self. It's not about trying harder. Uh, it's about belief. Belief, belief, belief in the crucified and risen Christ, the offering of God, the ultimate word that God says to a dead and dying world, um, which is not just a statement or content or a piece of information. It's God saying, I will bleed for you. Believe in me. Drink my blood. Uh, eat the bread of my body and, and you will be saved. Um, God, whether that happens in a physical way in our church as we suffer for each other as human beings, as fellow Christians in a family, uh, or especially when we sing about and hear about how God did this for us, may that be a mark of Hiawatha Church enduringly, um, that we don't abdicate Christ. We don't move on from the gospel. Uh, we don't yank the reins back uh, when it comes to God doing everything and us doing nothing. Uh, we never qualify it. We seek to live in light of it and to be strong in it um, in the grace of God all the time. And uh, we pray for your help in that, your forgiveness of our sins, and your closeness to us today as we leave here. In your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>